Reading is on page 1218 of the Church Bible, page 1218, and it's the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, and I'm going to read all the way through to verse 8 of chapter 3. So page 1218, 1 Peter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 living godly lives in a pagan society. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Do turn in your ready. Patience of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, our gracious Redeemer and Lord. Amen. So you may want to have the passage open, you that, open before you that we've uh, just been reading from the first letter of St. Peter, uh, chapter, chapter 1, uh, bigger pardon, chapter 2, uh, let's get it right, chapter 2, verses 11 to chapter 3, verse 8. It's a passage which zooms in. It begins, taken in the round, as relationships with the whole of society. You've been thinking, I think, in this sermon series about the nature of relationships and growing through relationship of growth and growing through relationships is uh, what we're considering today. And so it begins uh, on a very broad field, thinking about relationships with the whole of society. It then narrows down a bit to relationships that we should have uh, with politics and with the state. Uh, It then narrows down to relationships in workplaces and then to our households and finally to individuals. So it's as though we're zooming down and focusing in. And overall, the key verse is that uh, first one from uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's good lives amongst the pagans. This is a non-Christian society, the context of this, and that's where we are in London, in a largely speaking non-Christian society. It is the case, unfortunately, that something like 98% of the people around whom and with whom we live in the wider society don't know Jesus, don't attend church, don't worship. That is our context. And in the society of the time of this letter, wrongdoing, it was a civil wrongdoing not to worship the emperor unless you were in a privileged religion like Judaism. And so for Christians then and Christians now, it is countercultural to do what we're doing. And it is something that our society finds difficult. This context is our context. And what the passage is saying in the round is that what makes us important, what enables us to grow to that point where we can be ourselves most fully, is that we are able to bring people to glorify God. And that the way we should do that, the way that we should live in good relationships is to serve others through the way in which we relate with others, even when others relate to us badly. So time and again in this passage, we're going to find, what we tend to do is say, get the relationship right, and then you can go off and do something. And what this passage is saying is the relationship is failed, broken, rubbish. In that context both in the broad thing of society and actually challengingly right down into our households, we can actually do something that will enable us to grow to the point where we are able to bring Christ and that he can then heal the world. That's what this passage is doing, bringing Christ so that he can heal the world. So verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... Foreigners and exiles, that's who we are. As I've just said, we are actually not at home in the society in which we think we're at home, or we shouldn't be, because society is profoundly not Christian. And if we feel at home in it, we're probably doing something wrong in our way of living. That's a real challenge to us. It's an extraordinary thing. And our society, doesn't it, it it searches for ways that people can get status. And 
We all want to do that. I want status. I lunch with the Lord Mayor, brothers and sisters. I'm an Archdeacon of London. Aren't I grand? That's not the kind of status. That's not the kind of thing that will enable me to grow into good relationships. My place in society, who I am, is not to be defined by those things. Living as citizens, wrapped up, I'm to be a foreigner and an exile. It's a dead end to, te- to, seech, to search for celebrity. It's a dead end to look for things other than the relationship with Christ through which those failed relationships may be healed. So, having talked about relationships with society as a whole, we then move on in verses 13 to 17 to talk about relationships with politics and the state. And there's something quite troubling and challenging at the beginning of this. Submit yourselves, it's very harsh language, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or, or, or. The principle is, the underlying principle is that the Christian is free. Verse 16, live as free people, but don't use your, use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Now, this evil is self-aggrandizement. In, in my relationship with politics and the state, very often what I want to do, even when I'm sort of campaigning for something which is terribly good, what I actually want to do is to make myself feel terribly important. I am the chairman of the board for schools. If I can get the London Dusters Board Schools to be brilliant, then won't the Archdeacon have done a brilliant job? There's this kind of awful way in which we are constantly called back into ourselves, into that selfishness, into putting myself at the centre. And what this passage does is to say, you know, I must live as God's slave. It's really challenging language. I must not be seeking power for myself. And I mustn't be seeking power for myself even when I'm trying to do the right thing by helping society to be better as a whole. The author is clear that the aim in view for the Christian is ultimately speaking not actually the production of a really good and holy society. The challenge to us is that we should live radically unselfishly, not looking for earthly power, focus on glorifying God to get my relationships right and then human society is effectively healed by God's action. And so the author says, by showing, verse 17, by showing proper respect to everyone, loving the family of believers and fearing God, and while honoring the emperor, others will look at us and go, yeah, That's a really good thing to do. I want a piece of that. I want to come and join that. And that is what will then change society. Not me actually going out and doing really good stuff to kind of campaign for society's change or even voting the right way or any of those other things. That's really challenging to our usual way of thinking about how we should behave. This is one of, I found this a really extraordinary passage to work through in detail for the, that reason, because it challenges time and time again. It's going to do this now with the, pas- the, the section of it about relationships at work, which is verses 18 to 25. Because this gets even more shocking, because it starts talking about slavery. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Well, some translations said servants and lords. Other translations say workers and masters. There's a whole different way you can do it. It's basically because the root word doulos can mean anything from slavery at one end right the way through to somebody who's paid a shed load of money for doing a job and has a line manager at the other. And so what this passage is doing is taking in every kind of working. 
and then putting it in the framework of the slave. That's a bit challenging to those of us as COOs, and some of you in the congregation might be CEOs, said he looking at the rector. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 uh, uh, but whatever place we are in our workplace, we're called to uh, put ourselves in this particular framework. So that our, and, with, and the message is that we are not to rebel regardless of the provocation. And once again, what's going on here is that there's a, a focus on God. And this is not about social conservatism or the establishment of a specific political or economic program. It's about placing the whole emphasis of life on glorifying God. And out of that then flows a focus on working practices or whether society is just in the way it treats people who work. And so verse 20 says, How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable to God. And the passage then goes on, shifting from this relationship between a slave and a master, a worker and an overseer, suddenly to Christ's cross. Verse 23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now, it's really important that Scripture is not saying here that suffering in itself is a good thing. We should be seeking an end to slavery and all forms of mistreatment of workers of all types. But what it is saying is that the mistreatment of workers is not the main thing. The main thing is that in and through his suffering, Christ changes the world. And Christ is offered as the model of every suffering slave worker. He did not participate in intrigues in social action. Remember, go back to the Gospels and read the life of Christ. He's not into any of those things. Indeed, one reading of the frustration that Judas had about him was that he wasn't. Judas the Zealot is not interested. He wanted to have a political program, which Christ did not do. And that's really challenging to those who would like us to have one. What he did do was, verse 24, bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And so by his wounds you have been healed. And as we know, and I'm not now going to go back and give a sermon preaching the cross because it's, it's embedded in this, in this passage and we know that, or go back and look at it again, but as we know that through the cross of Christ, Jesus profoundly changes the whole world. He heals the relationship between God the Father and his created human children. And he brings us back into the presence of God from which we had been cast. More profoundly did the cross change the world than any working time directive or provision of workplace rights or abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. The cross stands over all of those things as a more profound change to the world than any of that stuff. And what this passage is doing is calling us back to the cross and saying that is where you will find true change, where you will heal the relationships. And so in the end, this part of the passage calls us back to not a program of rights, mine or another's, but to focus on glorifying God. And so it says, verse 25, don't be like a sheep that wanders around going astray to other causes but return to the shepherd and, ouch, more slave language, overseer of your souls. So we've narrowed down. We've had society as a whole. 
We've had politics in the state. We've had the workplace. And now, each time, it's been a bit uncomfortable, and now it's going to get even more uncomfortable. Beforehand, Charles said to me, he said, I'm sorry for giving you the slight snorker at the end of this passage. Well, thanks ever so much. But it does actually all fit beautifully together because the same thing is going to be said. Because we're going to be told once again that by focusing on humble submission to God, even in the context of relationships which have failed and broken, that is how we will make a change. That is how we will grow and be able to make things different. Not by trying to get the relationships right and then going on from there, but by focusing on God who will then change everything. It's uncomfortable because it rejects the activist way of using power to beat power. And it challenges so much of what we think or have been brought up to think is the right way. So wives, in the same way, submit, harsh language, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that... If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. That's chapter 3, verse 1. The principle that evangelization by submission changes people and therefore changes the world could not be clearer. The woman wins over, the wife wins over the unbelieving husband by her behavior. Now, already this teaches us something about the equality of men and women in this passage. Because even in the mixed marriage between a a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, the wife is the teacher. Brothers and sisters, this is in the context of a society in which women were not allowed to teach, in which their evidence was not to be heard. The wife, by her behavior, is to teach, is to evangelize, is to convert her husband. There's a radical feminism buried in this on the surface of which looks quite challenging to our modern ways of thinking. When they see, verse 2, the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. And the Christian woman is not to fall into the trap of using beauty and fashion as a form of power, caving into the tendency of men to objectivize women. When a relationship is built on that foundation, it will founder even more profoundly than any other. But it needs to be built rather on the personality, your inner self, verse 4, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And by offering her inner self, the wife in this passage is taught that she will become like Sarah. Sarah? Sarah, the foremother of the whole chosen people, the foremother of the Messiah, who, despite her advanced age, was prepared to be obedient to the promise to bear children to Abraham and therefore changed the world. Her obedience to God made an extraordinary difference to the course of history. You are her daughters, verse 6, if you do what is right And do not give way to fear. Isn't that interesting? It's you're afraid your fear might drive you to try to seize power. Don't give way to that fear. Now, this is a million miles from submitting to domestic violence or to abuse, which is not what this passage is about. And those who would try to use it to justify trapping women into abusive circumstances have not understood what it is saying. We grow through relationships which give glory to God and which therefore change the world. 
That is what it is saying. And it then, in in a way that is less shocking to us, but would be very shocking to those who first heard this passage, it spins and looks at the husband and turns to the man. But it's also shocking to our 21st century way of thinking. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them, verse 7, with respect. Considerate. Now, the underlying word here is gnosis, knowledge. And first century Gnosticism, which was a system of beliefs that was beginning to develop around that time, it grew up and got bigger in the second century and then died out in the third and fourth. But in the context of the writing of this passage, it was beginning to get ahead of steam. And it had a tendency to say that women were completely different from men, a different race, a different thing, lower, carnal, unclean. And this passage utterly rejects that and challenges it. The true gnosis, the true knowledge, is to treat women with respect and that she will be the one through whom you are saved, as we shall see in a moment. And then there's this thing about the weaker partner. Uh, One translation of this says the weaker sex or the, 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 the weaker part. And there is something about the physical strength of men and women but emotionally and spiritually we all know especially those of us who are married that our wives are usually much more emotionally and and uh, uh, mentally strong than we are and sometimes physically stronger as well but in the context of the new of, of the new testament christianity we also need to remember that context in which There's a twisting going on here, an attack on that Gnostic view that uh, women are just completely... Because uh, there's an echoing in everyone's, the back of everyone's mind is the teaching of St. Paul that that which is weak is in fact that which is to be put first and that that which is less is in fact greater and that the last shall be first and the first shall be last and that we are saved through the one who is crucified, who is the lower than the low when he is raised up on the cross. But above all, actually, there's an extraordinary thing that uh, the men are told, the husbands are told, that don't get it wrong, chaps, because if you do, your prayers will be blocked. Remember the proud Pharisee in the temple in the parable that Jesus told in St. Luke's Gospel, where he thanked that he, I'm not like this contemptible sinner over here. And there's a striking phrase in that, I'm so much better, Lord. And it said, he prayed to himself. His prayer did not get through. He prayed to himself. Society, to politics, to the workplace, to the household. And now, finally, we come to verse 8, the last verse, to individuals. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Such a person who is like that has grown, and grown mightily through a series of well-ordered relationships, which will bring the point to where she or he is enabled then to change the world. It's not that those relationships have been healed, but that the world has been healed and therefore those relationships will be healed through this growth. You change all of society, not by seeking status, but by looking for status only in Jesus Christ. You change politics and the state, not by campaigning, but by living well within the state, such that good politics may flow out from God's work in it. You change the workplace, not by seeking my rights or even another person's rights, but by modeling Christ, whose suffering changed the world. You change your household with a radical equality between men and women in which both can do this. For even when the relationships are unequal, 
or the relationship is not, is not well-ordered on the surface, it is possible to live in such wise that we are able to change our households and make them places from which God's life can flow. And so we grow. Overall, we are being taught that by living in submission to God, we are enabled to forge and to grow ourselves into people who may be agents for the changing of the world, for the changing of our own relationships and of the relations which others have such that society is healed. And so we have been told to go right back to the beginning again and draw it all together, quite simply, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Amen.